Welcome everybody, my name is Makal Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 41, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 3, Joseph. Welcome back to the land of the Old Testament. So, at this point, we are still in the book of Genesis, and we last left off with Isaac and Ishmael, the sons of Abraham. So, we're following that bloodline here, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That's the Jewish bloodline, rather than the Arabic one descending from Ishmael. And that'll be a theme here, because the Quran does not tell a Jewish-style story with Arabs in place of Jews. It doesn't replace many stories like that. Although you did see an example of that in the last episode with the sacrifice of Ishmael, Ishmael, not Isaac. So, particularly when we get to Joseph, this is still the Jewish bloodline and Jewish holy men. God's promise to the Arabs would not be fulfilled until the arrival of Muhammad. So, like with the Christians, it's the story of the Hebrew people that shapes the time leading up to Jesus and Muhammad. So, Jacob is an Islamic figure, albeit a minor one. It seems his most important role in Islam is simply being the father of Joseph, who is a prophet Muhammad revered and whose story will come shortly. So, in the Islamic version, there is no tricking Isaac to cheat Esau out of the inheritance. There's no dreaming of the stairway to heaven. There's no wrestling the angel, at least in the Quran or the Hadith. But... Remember that just because those things are not in the Quran or the Hadith, that doesn't mean they aren't really part of the Islamic story. And I know this can be a distinction that's hard to make sometimes because you just don't know, you know, what was assumed knowledge and what was explicitly said. Um, so just because they don't exist in Islamic sources does not make them un-Islamic. Now, it's extremely likely this information was simply general knowledge particularly in Medina with its large Jewish population. So the Quran may have simply not thought it was worth mentioning. And in the Quran, it's pretty much about Joseph. And there's plenty on Joseph. Uh, in the Quran, he is known as Yusuf, son of Yaqub. So let's just go right to the Joseph narrative. But first, for those who don't know, here's the important genealogy you need to know going in. I don't want to assume everyone is super familiar with the Bible, although I'm guessing most of you are. Now, Jacob was Joseph's father, but he also had many, many, many other children through four different women. The most important of these was Rachel, whom he loved above all the others. Now, why is that important? Because Rachel only gave birth to Joseph and, a little later, the youngest of Jacob's sons, Benjamin. She died giving birth to Benjamin, and this cemented Joseph and Benjamin as favorite sons. Um, on a side note here, Jacob is also known as Israel, and he is the source of the later 12 tribes of Israel, or rather his sons are. The 12 tribes are named after the 12 sons of Jacob. All right, so now we'll go into the Joseph story. More so than any other figure, there is almost complete overlap here between the biblical story of Joseph and the Quranic version of Joseph. There is one key difference in the story, and I'll get to that later. But first, the story itself. The Quranic story here is the entirety of Surah 12, 
named Joseph for a very good reason. So unlike most Islamic figures, you don't have to wander around the Quran and take bits and pieces to put a story together. It's all right there in Surah 12. Like a biblical story, it's a straight narrative from beginning to end. But unlike the Bible, it's presented as a moral story more than simply a historical narrative. Even in this Surah, Surah 12, the only Surah that is a biblical-style narrative, it is more of a sermon than a simple story. In Quranic style, there is often an interruption of the story by the Quranic voice, basically the voice of God, giving the moral of the story as it goes along. Here's an example. It's when the Egyptians are searching the bags of the other brothers, but the Quran doesn't just tell you that. It tells you, I mean, it tells you that, but it tells you something more. It tells you explicitly what this is demonstrating. This is from verse 76. First comes the story. Then Joseph began the search with their bags before his brother's bag. Then he produced it from his brother's bag. Then we get the sermon. Thus did we contrive for Joseph. He could not have taken his brother according to the king's law unless Allah willed. We raise by grades of mercy whom we will, and over every lord of knowledge there is one more knowing. So you see this kind of dual narration, this dual narrator, and it's present in more verses than it is not. And to be honest, it's an infuriatingly difficult way to read a story. Although, I probably shouldn't really be saying that because that second voice, that interrupting, omniscient preacher, appears to be the voice of God. So, here I am. I'm actually complaining that God interrupts too much. Uh, Lord, I apologize and be with them starving pygmies down in New Guinea. Uh, I'm still here, so I think God and I are on good terms. But I think that's illustrative of the stylistic difference between the Quran and the Bible. You know, I think the reason it became obnoxious in my brain hearing this constant interruption is because my brain was expecting standard literature or a biblical narrative, but that's not what happens in Surah 12. So always, always remember that the Quran is not the Bible. If you come in expecting the Bible, you will always be disappointed and you'll miss something pretty fantastic. But again, dramatic, linear storytelling is not the purpose here. Because this is two things. It's a narrative and it's a sermon. But it's also why I don't think I'm going to read the whole story here. It's just too long, for one thing. And so much of it overlaps with the biblical story anyway. So what I will do is give you the short version of both stories. Yes, both stories. I don't mean the biblical story and the Quranic story. These two stories are from the Quran. I mean the Quranic narrative and the Quranic sermon. I'll start with the sermon. The sermon says, God is smart and people are ignorant. You do not know what God is doing, so don't criticize God. You have no idea what God is doing, so be patient and understand that you cannot see what God sees. Or, as Joseph says in verse 67, 
Lo, the decision rests with Allah only. In him do I put my trust, and in him let all the trusting put their trust. The Quran presents Joseph as an example that humans really do not fully understand the role that God is playing in history or in any individual's life. Uh, God knows best, and people simply cannot know how God is using them to advance good things. In some ways, it's a Quranic version of Job. God's words to Job in the Bible would be quite appropriate here. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Now, if you've read the book of Job, God goes on like that for quite a long time. But you get the point here. How can you question God when you don't know what God knows? That's a theme in the Sermon of the Surah of Joseph. But what about the narrative? What about the story itself? Uh, here's my condensed version of that story. Joseph takes his strange dream straight to his father. Joseph saw 11 planets, the sun and the moon, all bowing before him. Joseph's father Jacob tells him not to tell anyone else, especially his brothers. So then his brothers, jealous that he is the favorite, throw Joseph down a well anyway. Then the brothers give up the bloody shirt to Jacob. This is all familiar. This is in the Bible. Claiming he was eaten by a wolf. There was no mention of a technicolor dream code or anything like that. So Joseph is stuck in a well, and some slave traders find him and sell him. The Egyptian who bought Joseph had a bit of a cougar for a wife, and when he matured, she tried to seduce him. For those unfamiliar with American slang, uh, a cougar is a woman who likes younger men. So Joseph ran. He ran away from this older woman. But as he left, she tore his shirt off. So, of course... At this exact awkward moment, in walks the master. Both blame the other as the aggressor, and here we veer off the biblical story a bit. By both blame each other, I meant the woman and Joseph each blame each other for this compromising position they're being seen in. So then, a trusted family member of this household says to check the shirt. If it's torn from the front, the wife is telling the truth. If it's torn from the back, then Joseph is telling the truth. Now, it was torn from the back. So the Aziz, which was his title, the Aziz, you know, he was some kind of important government functionary. This guy asked Joseph for forgiveness, and he tries to bury the matter. Now, there's one important note here that is not really in the text itself, at least according to some Quranic commentators. The Aziz in this story was a eunuch. The marriage to this woman was simply political, which might be why he was so merciful with her. Now, I have no idea whether this is true, but it does help explain the rather bizarre actions of the Aziz. They decide to throw a banquet, and the wife invites all these women over, presumably to show off Joseph, 
who must have been one heck of a handsome guy. The women are so distracted by Joseph, in fact, that they all end up accidentally cutting themselves with their knives, probably because they were just staring at him a lot or something. It doesn't go into great detail about why. Now, what comes next is a bit mysterious, but I think the implication is that Joseph basically had to take part in an orgy or go to prison. Now, he chooses prison, and he is at peace with his decision. Now, keep in mind that the Aziz is a real weak guy in this story, and he may have simply been worn down by his wife. I think the idea was to send Joseph to prison, making him look guilty, and keeping him there until everyone basically forgot about it, and there just wasn't any more scandal in whatever their social circle was. But unlike his master, Joseph is one of the strongest men on earth. Spiritually strong, that is. I mean, if you think about it, he's a sexual Samson here. Because really, you know, for all my fellow men out there, be super honest with yourself. Given the choice between at least a half dozen beautiful women and prison, which choice would you make? Yeah, I'd probably make that choice too. For any non-saint, that's simply too much to ask. Better to rationalize it somehow and beg God's forgiveness with that epic memory filed away. Especially when prison is the alternative. And that's what makes this a great story. It sets up Joseph as a man of almost unfathomable character. I can't think of any other story where the hero faces such a lopsided decision. And perhaps that's the point. So, none of that is in the biblical story. See verses 26 to 34 of Surah 12 if you want to read that part for yourself. But then the biblical and Quranic stories slowly converge again. Joseph is in prison with two other guys, and they want their dreams interpreted. One said he dreamt he was pressing wine. The other said he was carrying bread on his head while birds were eating it. After a few lines about how great God is and that he gave Joseph the gift of interpretation, Joseph tells them, The first will pour out wine for the king, and the other will be crucified while birds peck at his head. Then years later, the more fortunate prisoner, having forgotten Joseph for a time after he was released, notices the king talking about a mysterious dream that he had. Now, this person remembers Joseph, and the king summons Joseph to interpret his dream. In this dream, there are seven fat cows being eaten by seven skinny ones, and seven green spikes of grain and seven dry ones. Joseph tells him about the boom and bust weather patterns that are coming, meaning he should source grain during the good times, uh, because things are about to get really, really bad and really, really lean. Then the story abruptly shifts back to the women from the earlier attempted orgy. The king summons the Aziz's wife, and she tells him that Joseph was truthful and that she was the seductress after all. And that's it for that. That bit was probably more to complete the sermon than the narrative. Just in case anyone wasn't completely certain that Joseph was innocent, this is letting the reader know that. Then the story continues. The king decides to make Joseph his assistant, taking charge of stockpiling grain. 
Now we jump ahead to the inevitable famine when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and get some grain. Joseph gives them some, but he tells them to bring their brother Benjamin next time. I should have mentioned that they do not recognize Joseph at all. So Joseph snuck the money, or bartered goods, or whatever they had used to pay for the grain, back into their packs before they left. He did this to be sure that they would come back for another great deal. After all, they basically got all this stuff for free. So when they're home, they decide to do exactly that. But Jacob is hesitant to send Benjamin. He agrees, but basically makes the brothers swear by their lives that Benjamin will come back. So all the brothers return to Egypt, and they go before Joseph. And in the Quranic version, Joseph tells Benjamin from the start that he is Benjamin's brother, that he is Joseph. So Benjamin is wise to the ruse to come. And it's a kinder, gentler version, I suppose, at least from Benjamin's perspective. Because after all, Benjamin didn't do anything wrong. And the Quran's version is much less stressful for him. So then the familiar trick is played. They plant the king's big kingly cup in Benjamin's sack. Joseph accuses him of stealing it. The brothers offer themselves in Benjamin's stead, but Joseph rejects this. So Benjamin is stuck there with Joseph. So the brothers go back and tell Jacob what had happened. And Jacob has them go back to try again to get Benjamin. Only at this point does Joseph finally reveal his identity to his brothers, 40 years after they had dropped him in the well. Joseph forgives them and tells them to go back to Jacob with one of his shirts. Now, Jacob rubs the shirt on his eyes, which cured his blindness because he had gone blind crying for Benjamin. So Jacob forgives the brothers and everyone is happy. They all go back to Egypt to live permanently. And when they see Joseph, the whole family bows before him. Now, interestingly, in the Quran, this is the fulfillment of Joseph's original dream at the beginning of the story. In the Bible, this happens much sooner. You know, it happens when they first see Joseph in Egypt and they bow to him. So you see the difference here. The Quranic commentaries are also quick to point out that the text actually means that they all bowed to God together, not to Joseph. You know, these are supposed to be good Muslims. They're not going to bow to Joseph. They only bow to God. So they all settle in Egypt to live happily ever after, at least for a while. So think about the pattern we're starting to see here. Once again, we have an Islamic story that is a morality play. Now, to be fair, the biblical story is a morality play as well but not to the same degree. The biblical story is telling a great tale of redemption, but really the redemption is more about the nation of Israel than any individual story. It's an origin story, and it tells the audience how the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt to begin with, you know, before Moses ends up taking them out. The Old Testament is about the Israelites bouncing from one place to another experiencing one calamity after another, and the lessons that they draw from it. The Quran has no such focus. It's about Islamic theodicy and holding up Joseph as a great prophet 
and showing the importance of doing the right thing, even when it's very, very inconvenient. I should have theodicy. It's basically why bad things happen to good people in a religious context. So this is an Islamic theodicy story. I don't think the Quran mentions the name of Joseph's brothers even one time, not even Benjamin, because the Quran doesn't care who the 12 tribes of Israel are. It's not keeping records. It's giving a sermon. And this particular sermon happens to take up an entire surah of the Quran, and a pretty long one too. That's how it got up to number 12. Muhammad called the story of Joseph the most wonderful of stories. And I think this is a great story just from an objective perspective, of course. But also think about what it probably meant to Muhammad on a personal level. The Surah of Joseph was revealed in the late Meccan period, which was when the Muslims were facing persecution and preparing to make the Hijra, the move to Medina. So those in the community who knew the biblical stories probably had their minds on the Old Testament as they prepared their own exodus. And you can see how the story of Joseph here would reinforce the community and give it strength. Like Joseph, Muslims were being abused and discarded by their own family members, by their clans and their tribe as well. They were facing adversity that seemed perplexing based on their piety. After all, they were doing the right thing, weren't they? So what better story to tell these people than Joseph, the righteous man who faced persecution, went to prison, but never renounced his faith and ended up in charge of Egypt's entire food supply. The abandoned man who prospered in a foreign land. Perhaps they too could do that. And for those who believe the Quran is divinely inspired, one could also view the story of Joseph as a prophetic one for the Muslims of this period. This should probably be a point of emphasis for any Islamic apologists out there. Because here we are with a reeling, persecuted community. They're holding to their faith, but it's not easy. They're being killed and tortured and boycotted and mocked. And their prophet is in some serious trouble. His protector, Abu Talib, just died, and Muhammad's wife, his strength for so long, had also died. There was never a lower point for Muhammad and for the entire Muslim community. And in this time, what does God send down? A modified story of Joseph, the Quran's longest narrative. And what happens to the Muslims in the end? Exactly what happened to Joseph. The Muslims were unjustly exiled, fleeing their land. They come to a new place, and a prophet ends up as the de facto ruler of this foreign land. With Muhammad in charge, the Muslims form their own prosperous community, showing that evil can only prosper for so long before the scales are balanced and the righteous are rewarded. And how prophetic it turned out to be, indeed, you know, paralleling the biblical arc of leaving home, living in exile, and returning. The Israelites, by the way, have now done that three times. Uh, the return from Egypt, the return from Babylon, and the return to modern Israel. They're good at it. Just like the Israelites, the Meccans would go to their own Egypt 
and back home, only in a much shorter time frame. And the Muslims only had to do this once. Well, as far as we know, they've only had to do this once. I won't be living in a few thousand years. Things could always change, but so far, just the one time. This could also be looked at through the lens of Muhammad personally. Of course, he likes the story of Joseph. He kind of lived it. Joseph went from nothing, from being a de facto orphan to being so prosperous he could provide for his entire family in Egypt. Muhammad went from orphan to rich man through a similar process to Joseph. If the Muslim sources are to be believed, the whole reason Muhammad married Khadijah, his first wife, and thus became rich through marriage, was due to faithfulness and honesty, just like Joseph. And Muhammad, too, had to leave home and became prosperous enough to support his whole family in a foreign land. You know, there are differences, obviously. Muhammad never went to prison or had to turn down an orgy, you know, or professed any ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph was never stormed out of stormed. Joseph was never stoned out of a town the way Muhammad was. You know, he never had to bury a wife or a child, I think. And Joseph certainly never had to raise an army. But the Quran sets them up as kindred spirits, which I think is what makes Joseph a major figure in Islam. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time, inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.